I love uh, being at a church, honestly, where we can sing a song like that. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Where you guys are like Richard, Richard right next to me that whole time is just saying yes. <laughs> right, Richard? Yes. Yep. <laughs> um, okay, just a couple of things before we get into Luke chapter 8. Marriage retreat next weekend. We still have eight spots open. Um, so if you're still wondering, uh, let me just say this. This weekend is not just a weekend designed for the marriage that's struggling or the marriage that's in crisis. It's really a marriage getaway. That's, I mean, my marriage has been in those places, but right now, by the grace of God, my marriage isn't. And... Libby and I can't wait just to have a getaway, uh, to be with other Crossroads couples and uh, have some fun. Also, kind of have a spring cleaning with our marriage. There's always stuff. So if you're thinking about, you know, whether to go or not, you want to have some fun as a couple, um, still not too late to sign up. Also, uh, this past Wednesday, we kind of held our first... um, thing as a church here. Uh, we, we had a ton of people eating over there from, from 6 to 7, and we started this, this uh, theme, What God Says About. And this week we hit, we hit the tough issue of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and all of that. We had 300 people that came, and I just, I, I bless God, not just for the number of people that came which shows me that our church cares about this. But the night was awesome. And we're going to continue to do these. We have one this Wednesday as well. Um, we're going to probably take like two or three topics this, this week. Uh, topics that aren't just, okay, let's wrestle over this. And who's right, who's wrong. No, 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 no. There are things that we as Christians need to think through. We need to wrestle through. And we're not going to come away with all the perfect answers on a Wednesday night. But as a community, we're going to wrestle through these things and wrestle with God's word and find out what he has to say so that when we go out there in the 90 at our street corner, we can stand and we can speak to these things. So... Anyway, I'm, I'm applauding uh, the great turnout, and I'll see you guys Wednesday night, some of you. Okay. Luke chapter 8. Let's continue our journey. Starting at verse 40. Anybody have a page number? Anybody need a Bible this morning? Crossroads loves its middle name, Crossroads Bible Church. Um, so, raise, look at Doug Tagus, one of our, <laughs> I don't know of a guy who loves the Word of God more than this guy, and Doug's hating me for saying that right now, but uh, it's, 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 it's true. Okay, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Luke 8, verse 40. What a text we have today, you guys. Honestly, if you're excited about the Super Bowl, this Super Bowl doesn't even compare to this text. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. 
because his daughter, a girl of about 12, that kind of cracks me up, about 12, like she's either 12 or she's not 12. (laughs) But you'll see, there's a reason for that. Was dying. His daughter was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for how long? 12 years. There's the connection. But no one could heal her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the ed- edge of his cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Someone touched me. When they all denied it. <laughs> I mean, I picture Jesus like, who touched me? Who touched me? Did you touch me? Did you touch me? Did you touch me? No, Jesus, I didn't touch you. And then Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know because the power has gone out from me. And then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then Jesus said to her, my daughter, it's not daughter, it's my daughter. My daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in shalom. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, a synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother to teach her anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just trust me. And she will be healed. And when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in to be with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. And meanwhile, all the mourners were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. They laughed at him. They laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand, and he said, my child, get up. And she was dead because her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to to eat to prove that she was not a ghost. And her parents were deeply in awe, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is God's word. You can be seated. What a text, huh? Um, had their tages on my mind all this week. Um, the Stoies, uh, other funerals that I've done because I've used this text often at funerals, and um, it's a text of just awesome hope. Let's start with uh, verse forty. Verse forty says, "Now when Jesus returned, he just." He's coming from where? He's coming from the Decapolis, from the other side. He's coming back to, the, to this religious area, what we call the triangle, uh, where these religious Jews are. And it says that there's a huge crowd that's waiting for him. They're probably literally on the shore. But one person in particular, Jesus can't get there soon enough. 
And that's Jairus, who it says he's the ruler of the synagogue, the synagogue of Capernaum. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but the synagogue that they uncovered in Capernaum is one of the largest in the world at that time. So you need to be thinking the president of Harvard or Yale. That's Jairus. But his 12-year-old daughter is in the emergency room and is about to die. And I just can't help but think, put myself in this guy's shoes because I have a 13-year-old. And this week I made the trek, and I appreciate so many of you guys uh, praying for me, uh, one of my former students, and to see her in her bed dying of cancer, literally. I mean, the only thing that she's taking right now is morphine. And if she wasn't taking morphine, they say she'd be dead by now. Cancer has filled her leg. It's filled her stomach, her intestines. It's in her brain. It's in her lymph nodes. She can't even go downstairs. She's confined to her bed. And every now and then she gets up to go to the bathroom. Four kids. (laughs) All under the age of 10. Husband pastor who planted a church two and a half years ago. Kara's journey with cancer coincides with all this. Kara has parents who won't come and see her. I said, why not? They can't deal with this. Why can't they deal with this? You're her daughter. They don't know Jesus. So They're your parents. They're in Florida. Doing what? Retired. Where? In some gated community. Doing what? Playing golf. I'm telling you, that's our world. Because our world doesn't have Jesus. Now think about the small glimmer of hope that enters this dad's reality when he finds out that Jesus is in that boat 50 yards from the shore and that that boat with Jesus is rowing towards him. I mean, this dad has already witnessed some pretty stunning things in his synagogue done by Jesus. Jesus uh, did an exorcism there. Uh, the, the synagogue's servant, or the centurion's servant, this all happened in his synagogue. Um, that healing took place there. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus did so much in Jairus' synagogue. So I can just see this, Dad. I, I, I see him literally running to the shore where Jesus' boat is, is about to land. And I also know that there's a crowd gathered around Jesus And if you want to envision what kind of crowd is there waiting for Jesus, all you have to do is turn to the next chapter and know that Jesus fed 5,000, and that was just the men. So I literally picture thousands of people. There he is. There's his boat. He's coming. And I see this dad just running towards it. And of course, Jairus is, is, is the synagogue ruler. I mean, he's the president of Harvard. So I see that crowd almost parting like the Red Sea when, when they see him approaching Jesus because that's what they would do for such a guy. Make way, everyone. Here comes Jairus. Let him pass through. 
And the text says, when this great man saw Jesus, what did he do? Look at verse 41. He threw himself at Jesus' feet. And he begs, please, Jesus, please. My little daughter's to the point of death. Please, please. Here you have this great man on his knees at Jesus' feet begging. Does that sound familiar? All throughout Luke's gospel. Off they go. Let's go. Whole crowd following. Can you picture it? Hundreds, thousands. Feel the buzz that's in the air. Look at verse 42. It says, and as Jesus was on his way, this is towards the end of this verse, the crowds almost crushed him. The word there is choke. I mean, there's a frenzy going on. I, I see these disciples too, like this is our guy, this is our rabbi, this is the one that we follow. Just this sense of pride. Jesus stops. Stops. He says, who touched me? Feel the tension right now. Feel the tension. I think the disciples at this point are probably shocked, maybe even a bit disgusted, and probably very embarrassed. In fact, in Mark's account of this story, it says the disciples rebuke Jesus with these words. They say to him, Jesus, you see this crowd that's pressing against you, yet you say, who touched me? Are you kidding And look what Peter says in our text. He says, Master, come on. The people are choking you. What are you asking? Who touched you? And I just see Jesus. Did you touch me? Did you touch me? Did you touch me? Do you think the disciples are frustrated? How do you think Jairus feels? Jesus, my daughter is literally dying. Please, can we go? Now what Jairus doesn't know is that another woman who's also been sick for the same amount of time that her daughter has been alive, 12 years, is is just as desperate as he is. Look at verse 43. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. So she came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Jairus doesn't know this. Jairus doesn't know that for 12 years this woman has had a hemorrhage of blood. Jairus doesn't know that this woman has has tried doctors and all of that, a a detail that Luke didn't want to put in there. Does anyone know why? Well, he's a doctor, so he's not going to, you know, throw his profession under the bus. But all the other accounts say that, and then later manuscripts also include it. That's why if you look down, you'll probably see a footnote. And for the last 12 years, she has spent everything that she has to try to get better, so she's left with no resources, and she's slowly dying. And see, that's, I think, the purpose of the 12, this number 12 in our text. It's to link these two stories together so that we lay them side by side. Because when we do, human wisdom will tell us that you always treat a crisis before you treat something that's chronic. In fact, I like what Tim Keller says about this. He says in in, in our day, this would be the equivalent of malpractice. 
Jesus would probably get sued for this. I want to push this further. In that culture, you always treated a man before a woman. You certainly treated the president of Harvard before a social outcast. Because that's exactly what this woman is. Her condition of bleeding for, for, for 12 years had severe social and spiritual consequences upon her life. I didn't mark this verse, but Leviticus 15, verse 19. So let me uh, get there. I'll let you go there and read it, but I'll sum it up. Basically, it's a verse where God says, a woman, during her menstrual cycle, is unclean. And she's unclean as long as she is in it. This woman, for 12 years, is perpetually unclean. And Leviticus 15 says that that woman is to be is, is to not to touch anyone, because if she touches someone, she's going to make that person unclean. And so being perpetually unclean means that she carried this label around. It, it meant that her life was, was spent in isolation. It, it, it meant that she could never celebrate the Passover, which is maybe our equivalent of Christmas. It meant that she was prohibited from going to the temple and, and, and participating in temple worship, the very thing she needed to get right with God during this time. In fact, being perpetually unclean, in that worldview which says choose to sin, choose to suffer, and all suffering was the result of sin, people would look at her and say, you are a sinner. What's wrong with you? But she, like Jairus, finds out that Jesus is coming to town. And in her desperation, she comes up with a plan. She probably disguises herself because she has to. She can't be seen in public. She's a social leper. But I want you to see this woman's chutzpah because she pushes through that crowd. She pushes her way all the way to Jesus with the idea that if I just touch him, I'll be healed. Now, I don't want you to see her faith as superstitious. This is actually a woman who knows the text really well. Because every Jewish male was instructed by God to wear tassels. Numbers 15. I don't know if we have that on PowerPoint. Numbers 15 says, this is, speak to the Israelites, say to them, throughout the generations to come, in other words, forever, <laughs> you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. And you will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord so that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and you will be consecrated to the Lord your God because I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. 
And so, Jewish men wear these. They wear them to remind themselves every day who they are, who they belong to, and what their mission is in this world. My mission is to obey God, to love him with everything I have. I mean, even think about it. This is like a tattoo. I remember uh, Doug Start, one of our former elders, had tattooed on this hand, I belong, and then on this hand, to Jesus Christ. That's exactly what these tassels did. They weren't just something that reminded a person of who they belonged to, but they were also a statement to the world, I belong to him. And when I'm tempted to prostitute myself, I literally have to take these things off to do it. Now, people ask me sometimes, did you, well, did Jesus wear these? What do you mean, did Jesus wear them? Of course he wore them. God instructed it. Jesus kept God's word to perfection, kept all of it. In fact, in the last chapter of, of, of what we call the Old Testament, one of the great texts about Messiah and the Messiah to come, it, it, it's there. It's the Revelation 21 and 22. And it, it says, the son of righteousness, that's Messiah, when he comes, will rise with healing in his wings. The Hebrew word for wing is also the word for corner. And God's instruction, if you, if you saw it, is put these tassels on your wing, on your corner of your garment. And so when they looked at that verse in Malachi 4, they said, oh my goodness, when Messiah comes, he's going to have healing in his corners, his tassels. And so this woman isn't superstitious. This woman knows her text, and she believes it. And not only does she believe the Bible, but think about what she believes about Jesus. She believes Jesus is the son of righteousness. And if I can just touch his corner, there's healing there. And it happens. And she's healed. And if you want to know what faith is this morning, it's not just putting a proposition into our brains. It's having this kind of chutzpah, the chutzpah of this woman, to get to Jesus at all costs, where we trust his word and we take hold of him, believing, you're all I need, Jesus. You're all I need. And when she does this, the power goes out of Jesus and she's healed. And I look at Jesus during this whole event, and it's kind of like, uh, well, I, I can almost hear him say it. Uh, Mr. Synagogue President, uh, you can wait in the waiting room while I deal with this person. <laughs> and see, over and over again, especially in Luke's Gospels, but it's in all the Gospels, we, we, we see this, this pairing. We see a social insider next to a social outsider. We see a religious insider like a Pharisee alongside a, a, a religious outsider like a tax collector or a prostitute. Or in the parable of the, 
of, of the prodigal. You have the, the rebellious son paired with the goody two-shoes son. And over and over and over again, who gets Jesus and who does Jesus get to? It's not the Pharisee. It's the prostitute. It's not the goody two-shoes brother. It's the prodigal. And see, what we need to know right now, that if Jesus walked into this room, the kind of people he would gravitate towards are not the people who have it all together, religiously, materially, and all that. He would look for the most messed up people with the most messed up lives. And his heart just gravitates there. Because with Jesus, it's not that the good are in and the bad are out. It's the humble who are in, and it's the proud who are out. God can't stand pride. He can't stand self-importance. He can't stand self-righteousness. This whole time, Jarius must just be losing his mind. The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. I mean, this whole delay must absolutely be killing him. And I think we've all been in this place, haven't we? Where we have to deal with the delays of Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, can't you see? I need help right now. My life is in the emergency room. Help me now. And see, then we start to think that if he doesn't answer our prayers now, or if he doesn't still the storm right now, or if he doesn't provide what I need right now, that there must be something wrong with either me and my faith or something wrong with God himself. Think these thoughts. When I think these thoughts, I go to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verse 9, says, this is God talking, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Do you know that? That his ways and his thoughts are far superior. To how you think things should go. See, Jesus will not be hurried. Jesus will do things on his time according to his agenda and not our agenda. And his delays, we need to understand this, are not because he doesn't care, but actually because he does care, because usually it's in the delays where now my faith really gets to be shown for what it is. Do I really have faith? Now, you know what I love about this story? When you look at it closely, Jairus and this woman both get far more than they ever bargained for. I mean, this woman is kind of seeking a hit and run. I'm just going to grab it and go. Think about what she gets. She gets far more than that. Jesus stops 
everything for her. Probably a first in her lifetime. Jesus treats her with such dignity, public dignity. That's probably the way this, this, this girl's been has been dreaming of being treated her whole life. And maybe for the first time, she actually feels like she's worth something. Jesus just stopped absolutely everything. Even what he's going to do for this college president, he stopped it all for me. And this, this, this woman came to Jesus just thinking that she was going to get Jesus' backside, like she was going to just grab that tassel and go. Instead, she gets Jesus' face. She gets a face-to-face encounter with the Messiah, and he calls her daughter. My daughter. Same thing with Jarius. Jarius comes seeking a healing. Instead, what does Jarius get? Jarius gets a resurrection. A resurrection. He, in his wildest imaginations, I don't think, could have ever imagined a resurrection. See, when we come to Jesus, we get far more than we bargained for. But we also have to give far more than we ever expected to give. Because look at this woman. Look at verse 47. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed. Some, some of you come to Crossroads that way. You just want to come here and you want to be unnoticed. It's easier to be unnoticed. Seeing that she could no longer be unnoticed, she came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. For her to have this life-changing encounter with Jesus, she had to go public with her need. She had to go public with her brokenness. She had to remove the disguise, not just for Jesus to see, but for everyone to see. She's probably humiliated. And Jairus, Jairus has to wait and wait and wait. And then look at verse 49. And while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher. I can just see Jairus about ready to say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, listen, don't bother. Instead, Jesus looks at him and says, Jairus, don't be afraid. Trust me. And see, I know some of you right now in this room, you're still wondering, what do I do with Jesus? Please know that when you entrust yourself to him, you're going to get far more than you could ever imagine, but he's also going to ask you to also give more than you ever thought. He demands my soul, my life, my all. And here's something, too, that we need to see about Jesus. When, when thousands are pressing around Jesus, only two get his touch. And I think it's that way today. I think many still flock to Jesus. Thousands press around him every Sunday in churches. They listen to him. They love to watch the show and be a part of the show. But only a few 
get his touch. Why? Because real faith is trust. Real faith is trusting Jesus with our very lives. It's trusting Jesus when our expectations aren't met. When he's not giving us what we want when we want it. It's trusting Jesus with our present. It's trusting Jesus with our future. It's trusting Jesus with our singleness. It's trusting Jesus with our sexuality. It's trusting Jesus with our marriages. It's trusting him with our kids. Even when we get the news that our 12-year-old is about to die. It's trusting him. And the mark of trust is not the proposition in the brain alone, but it's, am I following him? Am I following him out in all these areas? What he says about sexuality, am I following him? What he says about what it means to be single, am I following him? What he says about what it means to be in, in a marriage, in a covenant, am I following him? That's, that's, that's trust. It's not a feeling. following. It's Kara, who I told you about. It's walking into her bedroom and seeing someone that looks like death, literally. And so full of joy. She couldn't stop. Talking. Talking about what? Christ. Her brother recently, I mean, I told you about her parents. Her brother recently, who's not a Christian, came and just to be a brother, to live with her in her house, to take care of her. Older brother. Came to Christ. You know how he came to Christ? He has watched his sister suffer with so much hope. He's watched people from all over town come and see her saying, Kara, I just had to be with you. I had to tell you how much you're, you're blogging and you're writing, how it's changed my life. Just two days before I got there, she, her brother said, someone all the way from England flew there. And said, I gave my heart to Jesus. And I had to tell you that through your story. Because unless the grain of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it will bear no fruit. But when it goes into the ground and it dies, it will bear much fruit. Yes, it applies to Jesus. It applies to us as we follow him. She's desperate. Because that's what real faith is. It's desperate dependence on Christ. That's what we see in in Jesus through these gospel stories. He's saying, don't you get it? Don't you see the ones who get me? Don't you see the ones who get to me? Who understand me? Who fall at my feet? They're desperate. They're desperate. That's why there are thousands around him. But only two get his healing touch. Now look at this woman in our story. 
how desperate she is. She's probably given up all hope, hope in herself, hope in her means, hope in her doctors. You look at this dad, he's desperate. And then Jesus' delay only makes him more desperate. All they have is Jesus. And as Mother Teresa has told her, when all you have is Jesus, you realize all you need is Jesus. And God loves desperation. Let me just ask you a real honest question. You just answer it in your own heart. Have you ever gotten to the point where you despair of yourself? Or you've gotten to the point where, where, where you're despaired of yourself so much that you realize that, that, that in and of yourself, that you're nothing, that you possess nothing, that you offer nothing, whether it be your resume or your, or your perceived importance or your achievements or your reputation, that all of it is a vanity of vanities. Have you gotten to that point? Because to get to Jesus, we need to get to the end of ourselves. And this is not always a fun thing to do or to, to admit that we, we come to the end of our, our self-importance or the end of our self-righteousness and taking ourselves so seriously. Because at the end of the day with Jesus, it's not about us. It's all about him. You see, Jesus really only sees two kind of people in the world. He sees those who know their need and those who don't know their need. Which is why things like self-importance and self-righteousness are the greatest dangers to us getting to God. God loves things like desperation, humility, poor in spirit, even humiliation. He loves it. And you and I, we don't have to be a demoniac. We don't have to be a drug addict. We don't have to be a prostitute. We don't have to be in a room somewhere dying of cancer to know our need. You can be a synagogue ruler. You can be a president. You can be a doctor. You can be a lawyer. You can be a pastor. You can be a CEO. Henry David Thoreau said this. He said, the masses of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And we spend our lives just covering it up. See, until we acknowledge our desperation and bring this desperation to Jesus where our lives are bowed at his feet and we're pleading with him, we will never touch him and he will never touch us. Now look at what Jesus does with desperation because this is why we can trust him First of all, I want you to see his power. I mean, we've seen it throughout the gospel. Jesus confronts everything that plagues us. He confronts storms. He confronts sickness. He confronts demons. He confronts sin. Now he enters Jairus' home and he confronts the greatest enemy, death itself. He doesn't work up a sweat. There's no hocus pocus going on. There's no hyper-charismatic weirdness here. There's no, like, everybody trying to work themselves into this faith and prayer, and if we just rub the genie bottle the right way and say it the right way and do all the rituals the right way, maybe God will do something. Are you kidding me? All he says is, little girl, arise. 
just like he can say to a storm, shalom. Like he can look at a person possessed with a legion of demons and just say, come out. In fact, I love in Mark's gospel, Mark gives us a detail here. Mark tells us the exact words that Jesus says to this dead girl. Talyeta kume. Now, the, the, the closest translation we have of talyeta would be honey, sweetie. Kume. <laughs> it's time to get up. This is what she would have heard her mom say every, every morning. Sweetie, honey, it's time to get up. Jesus treats death like a good night's sleep. That's power. It's power. And not only do we see the power of Jesus, but we see the love of Jesus. I, I, I love this little detail here, how Jesus takes the, the dead girl by the hand because think about it, there, there's just something about having our hand held. I remember when I was a kid, everything was okay if I had my dad's hand. I think that was true about my own kids. Certainly not anymore, they're all grown up. But at least when they were little kids, when, when, we, when I held their hand, it's like they were okay, the world was okay. But of course, as parents, we know that, that, that our hands are always going to let, let our kids down in some ways. But we have a heavenly father whose hand will never let us down. Never. And I find this to be most comforting, this whole picture, to know that right now God has us by the hand. And even as we contemplate our death, because you can't walk into something that I walked into this week and not contemplate death. That in our moment of death, Jesus has us by the hand, not only to comfort us and to soothe us, but with the power to wake us up. And here's the deal. If Jesus offers us his hand in death, how much more is he going to offer us his hand in life? David understood this. He, he talks about it in Psalm 23. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow, he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff of the shepherd, of, 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 our, of, our, of our great shepherd, is the equivalent of God's hands. David says, you got me by the hand. That's comfort to me. And you know why we can have God by the hand today? For the simple reason that at Jesus' death, Jesus, the Son, gave up his Father's hand. He lost it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you let go of my hand? And I think if we could hear the father's answer to the son's question, it would be something like this. My son, in this one moment, will you stand in their place? Will you take upon yourself everything that they deserve? Not only sin, not only death, but for me to take them by the hand, I need to let go of your hand. See, anyone can die for you, but only one can stand in your place. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He came to this world to stand in our place. Same with this woman. We see it. There's that little detail 
it says, the power went out of Jesus for Jesus to heal this woman. He had to lose his power. He had to become weak so that she could become strong. And see, this is the whole meaning of the cross. Jesus had to become weak so that we could become whole. He had to lose his life so that we could have life. He had to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He had to become filthy and unclean so that we could be spotlessly clean. He had to lose his father's hand so that today we can have it. We can have it forever, forever. Paul says in Romans 8, nothing, nothing will separate us. From the love of God. And see, this is why Christians throughout the centuries have been set free from, from fear. God has me by the hand. It's why since the resurrection of Jesus, Christians have been inviting the world to wake up. As Paul says, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Are you sleeping today? Do you need to wake up? Do you have Jesus by the hand? Have you taken hold of his tassels? Have you fallen at his feet? Look at this woman. Look at Jairus. Admit your desperation. Get to him. Take hold of him. Go public with your need. Bow at his feet. This morning, this is what I love about what Jesus gave us. He not only gave us a message, but he gave us a meal that goes along with the message. He doesn't want us to just know this. He wants us to eat it. And so this morning, especially for those of us who know Jesus, who know need, why do we eat? Because we're hungry. Why do we drink? Because we're thirsty. Why this meal? Because we need them. We need them. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today, today can be the day. Or like Jairus, you can bow your feet, bow right at his feet, surrender your life. Let's pray. And God, I want to pray this prayer for those who are searching. Jesus, you claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. If what you claim is true, please guide me, teach me, and allow me to see what it means to follow you. Amen. And the prayer for those of us who trust him and believe in him. Lord Jesus, I admit that I see my sin, and I understand how grievous it is to a holy God. I need someone to pay the debt for my sin. I am in great need of forgiveness. By your command, I repent of my sin and believe that you alone pay the cost of my sin. Help me to live for you. Amen.